Welcome, everyone, to episode 60 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we are going to be diving deep, probably deeper than the movie even deserves, if we're being honest, into Todd Phillips' first foray into drama, Joker. With me on this submersion is none other than my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing? Are you ready for a probably heavier discussion than we have normally? I'm good, but I mean, man, I think this is the second episode in a row where you've uh, dropped a big spoiler about our review of the movie right at the beginning of the episode there. But uh, well, big spoiler. I can only talk about my own thoughts. Yes, that that is true. And it's not like we're not going to reveal them in five minutes or so from now. But uh, I'm doing good, Scott. I'm back at home for a little bit uh, in Tennessee, fall break from school, which is much needed, but uh, still going to be taking care of a lot of schoolwork while I'm here. But, uh, you know, I'll be doing it at home rather than uh, in Winston-Salem. So there's something to be said for that. So, uh, yeah, happy to be here and uh, interested to see what comes out of our discussion, because maybe more so than any movie this year, uh, I've just had people, a, a lot of people uh, at school and elsewhere, my roommates and stuff, asking me about uh, my thoughts on this movie. So, um, And is that because they've seen the movie or they're thinking about going to see the movie? A little bit of both. Um, some people have seen it. And yeah, some people... Um, at, at least one or two people I know like had not seen it yet um, and w- were interested to hear my thoughts. I don't know whether it will affect them going to see it or not, but mm-hmm. uh, we will see. Yeah, because I was looking at some interesting because my experience has been people asking me whether they should go see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that might just be a nature of my friends, because obviously a lot of people went out and saw this movie this weekend. Yeah, made, 93 million, <laughs> 96 million when they got the actual numbers. It, they actually underestimated it on the projections. Uh, so, yeah, 96 million this weekend uh, domestically, almost 250 globally. So clearly, you know, people went out and saw went out and saw this movie. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, I feel like a lot of people also didn't go out and see this movie. I was looking at some very interesting statistics around really the, the the large portion of the domestic gross came from the coasts and not the middle America, so to speak. And obviously I live on a coast and I guess technically you live on the coast as well, but you might fall more into the category of people who were under indexing on this movie this weekend. And we'll see if your thoughts on the film being, you know, you being a central oh, yeah. figure of someone who goes and sees a lot of movies. Being the hashtag country. influencer that I am. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being the only one of your, of your, law school friends on film Twitter <laughs> could probably influence yeah, influence member of film Twitter. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Well, Scott, I'd say it's uh, might as well go ahead and rip that bandaid off and get the conversation started. Joker directed by Todd Phillips. That's right. Of the hangover fame stars Joaquin Phoenix in the lead role as Arthur Fleck, a mentally ill clown for hire, literally who lives with his mother, Penny played by Francis Conroy in Gotham city in the 1980s. Arthur has a neurological disorder, maybe, that causes him to laugh at inopportune times and depends heavily on on a social worker for both counseling and medication for his various illnesses. In a whirlwind sequence of events at work where he is mugged by a group of young thugs, conned by his coworker into taking a gun for his own protection, and then fired after he drops the aforementioned gun while performing at a children's hospital, Arthur finds himself in worse shape than ever and being treated worse than ever 
by those around him. His one, well, his one, well, I say one ray of hope, but it's really, I guess, a couple rays of hope here, comes in the form of a late night talk show host, Murray Franklin, played by Robert De Niro, and Zazie Beetz's Sophie Dumond, Arthur's down-the-hall neighbor, whom he has a crush on. Arthur's world, however, continues to dissolve around him as Murray embarrasses him on national TV by playing one of his horrific stand-up clips. His social worker is defunded and can no longer provide Arthur his medication. His mother falls ill and is hospitalized, and he's mugged yet again, this time on a subway by a trio of Wayne Enterprise bankers. This time, however, he defends himself, killing two of his attackers in self-defense before executing a third and sparking a Gotham-wide riots against the upper class. What transpires from there is Arthur's continued descent into madness and asks the question of how bad someone's situation has to get before someone snaps and becomes the Joker. Scott, did you find Joker to be a deeply nuanced cautionary tale for the way Americans treat each other, in particular the less fortunate and the mentally ill? Or did you find this movie to only skim the surface while being stuffed with superficial philosophy and ultimately just a joke? Yeah, I mean, so obviously a very, very talked about movie. And I think just to cut to the chase, you know, what it comes down to for me is that this is an extremely disturbing and depressing movie that even people who uh, are positive on it, uh, I'm not sure that it's right to say that you like or enjoy the film because watching this film was not an enjoyable experience for me. And I don't think that that necessarily means that the movie is a failure. I think that that means, however, that the success of the movie is dependent on whether or not it has something to say, whether it is saying something important, whether in its darkness and depravity, um, there is some sort of truth about our lives or about society that um, comes out of the film. And maybe there are uh, sprinkles of truth in here. Um, but I think on the whole that Todd Phillips and is it Scott Silver? Is that the other screenwriter? Yeah. I think that they seem to think that they were making a much more important film than they actually were. Um, this movie is very overly serious. Again, not surprising for a DC movie, even if this isn't, um, linked to the DC extended universe. Um, it's very overly serious, uh, in a way that is obviously asking the audience to take it seriously um, while also giving us a um, very dark and disturbed character that uh, is presented in a manner uh, that, this is a topic that we'll get into, but it's somewhat controversial, I think, right? How the Joker is presented in this movie. And I don't think it's as bad as the media is making it out to be that, uh, oh, this movie lionizes the Joker, it's hero worship, of the Joker. I don't think that that's the case. Um, however, I think there is a degree uh, of relatability that they tried to give to uh, this character of Arthur Fleck and the Joker. Um, and, and maybe that stems from some of the mental illness angle. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't know, again, we're going to get into all these themes, so I don't want to uh, say too much up front, but I, I don't know that um, the, theme of mental illness was handled in a very uh, sensitive or nuanced way at all in this movie. Um, and I think that just in general, the the main thing that where the movie fails is that Todd Phillips can't seem to make up his mind about really what he wants to say. He seems to be sort of 
on the fence about a lot of things, whether it's politically, whether it's about what actually causes this type of violence that the Joker descends into. You know, is it mental illness? Is it people not being nice to Arthur Fleck? What exactly is is it the media sensationalizing violence? He seems to present all of these causes, potential causes, but without really ever, um, you know, telling us what he thinks or presenting one as perhaps the actual answer to the question. And by presenting all these things, he kind of undercuts some of the, um, you know, some of the ideas he's going for, right? If it's a mental illness, then if it's not mental illness, then it's you're blaming it on everyone else. And um, I don't know that that's a responsible take to have, um, but probably getting ahead of myself. In general, I think that, um, like I said, I didn't enjoy watching the movie and I didn't feel that it had very much to say, which is disappointing because I think what the movie does offer is a pretty phenomenal performance by Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. Again, not a surprise. Um, I came to this movie, I mean, the, the minute Joaquin Phoenix was cast as the Joker, I knew that this was going to be an amazing performance. That's just uh, what we've become accustomed to with Joaquin Phoenix. That's just the kind of actor he is. And he delivers here um, for for reasons that uh, I, we'll talk again more about why I think the performance is so successful. But it is a shame that this performance, which I do think will be heavily in the Oscar race, um, is going to come in such a bad, you know, I, again, I don't want to say bad, right? Because I think there are thing, a lot of things that it doesn't, that it, uh, doesn't do well. But I also think that it is worth talking about. It is worth discussing. And in some ways, that makes the film worth something. Um, it, it It's better than a movie like Vice, I think, last year, for example, which um, didn't offer anything. It was it was poorly made, poorly executed, and didn't offer any, any sort of discussion piece whatsoever. Um, but I think there are discussion pieces in Joker that we'll get into. And, you know, I did question when I walked out of the movie feeling kind of gross and ugly. I, I, I did question, you know, is this how I'm supposed to feel after watching this movie? Is this how Todd Phillips wants you to feel? Um, I don't think Todd Phillips knows how he wants you to feel because I don't yeah. think Todd Phillips knows really at all what he wants to do with this movie. And I think that speaks to one of the things that you're talking. I'll let you finish before I jump in. But I, I just think that, like, honestly, if you ask Todd Phillips how you're supposed to feel after this movie, I don't think he'd be able to give you an answer. Yeah, that's that's a very fair point. It does feel like one of those things where the director is just like where they would ask him about what's your interpretation? And he'd just be like, well, it's it's up to you. And which is just such a cop out. I hate when when writers and directors do that and, and they just are like, well, it, you know, it means whatever you want it to mean. No, you would not have created it if you had if you did not have a meaning in mind for this movie. Um, I just think that that's a lazy way out. And that feels like what Todd Phillips would probably say if he was asked about this. Um, so, yeah, ultimately, I guess what I'm saying is it feels almost exactly like you would expect a Joker movie directed by a guy who made The Hangover to feel. And that was my concern going into the movie. Um, I was optimistic about the movie. I did think the trailers were encouraging. But ultimately, I think that Todd Phillips' worst instincts as a director uh, probably get the best of him here uh, and unfortunately spoil a great performance by Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, so overall, I think that we really are feeling similarly, at least about a lot of like the broad strokes of the film and what and what Phillips is trying to do. The way that I've been thinking about it, because I've had a little bit more time than you to really kind of sit with the film, because I saw it on Saturday. You only saw it yesterday. And... I, I've come to the conclusion that I think that the good parts of this film, just to, to talk about those first, Joaquin Phoenix, absolutely incredible. 
probably the best lead performance for a male actor that I've seen so far this year. We have a ton of movies still to come uh, in this kind of Oscars season. It gets underway and it's going to carry all the way through January. And there's a ton of great performances that I think we're going to be seeing. But right now, for me, if you had to ask me who the front runner is for the Oscar uh, in February, then it's going to be Joaquin Phoenix right now. That could change. But he's phenomenal. Everything from the way he delivers the script, even if I have some problems that we, that I can talk about in a second about the script and and how I do feel like it's a lot of it's a full of a very empty and fake philosophy, which you could argue maybe is the point. Maybe that's what Todd Phillips is trying to do is give you a character that thinks he's really smart but really isn't very smart at all. Uh, but I think the way that Joaquin Phoenix delivers those lines is amazing. And I think one of the things that maybe is underrated about his past performances or underrated in general about performances is just the way he carries himself on screen in particular, the way that he moves in on on like on the screen the way he his dance is incredibly it, it sticks with you when you know those scenes where he starts dancing whether it's by himself in his apartment or even on stage kind of towards the towards the latter half of the movie i think those scenes are really striking to me and, and are some of the ones that have stuck with me the most so absolutely phenomenal performance by walking fans we'll talk about that more in a second maybe but some other things i think are the the cinematography i thought was phenomenal i thought that there was some amazing pan shots and and just kind of wide angle shots of the city as well as just a lot of um really kind of gritty gripping um textures to, to the cinematography almost and a lot of shooting from the ground up looking up at people and it really make gives you the the full scale of of these scenes and i really enjoyed that and then i thought the score is also phenomenal so from a from a technical perspective on on the score and cinematography side really strong and i think this movie if you talk about vice not being very well you know, made production-wise. I think this movie has great production value. I think a lot of the pieces uh, on that side of the thing really come together well. But everything from the direction, the, everything that has to do with the script and the screenwriting and the, and the narrative that it's trying to tell, I think is really just bungled. And I think you make a good point about this movie being worth talking about, uh, unlike a movie like Vice, because, you know, off you know off off air i did compare this movie to being you know sort of like this year's this year's vice and in some ways i think that's true in other ways it's not and i think that you make a good point there about this movie has has stumbled across things to talk about and maybe not unlike its lead character i think that it's stumbling across things to talk about is the way to describe it because as much as arthur has so little agency throughout the story and how he stumbles into being this leader of this of this you know class warfare movement that's going on i think this movie has stumbled into without really doing a very good job or really knowing how it's gone about it has stumbled into important things to talk about without ever actually motivating that conversation in a really positive way. And, you know, we'll get to those topics later on in the show, but it, it was really disappointing. I think that Todd Phillips really, to your point, you know, did straddle the fence and didn't come down either side. You know, in one moment, he has Arthur saying that, I'm not political, I'm apolitical. But then a, a moment later, spewing like a monologue for five minutes all about his politics and about what he thinks and about how people should treat each other, for example. And so that's just one of many examples, I think, that Todd Phillips just can't decide what he's doing with this film. And I think because he can't decide, and, 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 and to be fair, not every, not every movie has to have a point. You don't have to take a side on every side of the argument. But I think that you do have to commit to something. You have to commit to some way of going about telling your story. And Todd Phillips doesn't do that at any point in the movie, I think. And that's that was probably my biggest frustration uh, on, a, on a broad level. And I have plenty of frustrations more specifically. But anything you want to add before we jump into Joaquin's performance? Yeah, just, just two quick things. I think yep. to your point, um, yes, every movie does not have a point. But this movie is clearly a trying to have a point or it's, it seems like it is. Like it would not raise certain themes and ideas if it wasn't 
uh, trying to have a point. And so Absolutely. I think that's why it fails. The other thing I will say, this is probably my, my most controversial take, perhaps. I didn't really like the score. Uh, I thought it was very overbearing. I thought that it added to the feeling of, oh, we're trying to make this so serious. Like, don't you understand how serious this is right now? Don't you appreciate how epic and dark and serious this um, score is? Whereas I think like The Dark Knight, obviously, you know, there's some comparison there considering uh, that we also had a, a memorable Joker in that movie. Like Hans Zimmer was able to convey that with a very understated score, which is not something that you would often say about Hans Zimmer, that he had an understated score, but he did in The Dark it's one of, yeah, it's one of my favorite scores of all time for that reason. Uh, and I think this movie was trying to capture that, uh, but they just went really over the top with it. So that was my take on the score. Um, I, unfortunately, I wasn't a fan of it, but I am definitely in the minority on that based on things that I've been seeing. Yeah, and, and, and I can understand that. I, I have read some some places online as well. I can't remember if it was Letterboxd or if it was reviewed saying the exact same thing that you're saying here, that it it seems to, like many parts of this movie, tried to like emphasize how serious and how important the movie is. Um, and, and I hear that, but at the same time, it worked for me, but I, I have plenty. And maybe I just got distracted by all the things that didn't work for me that I didn't think about the score too yeah. much too. So, you know, I can, I can definitely see it both ways there. Yeah. All right, Scott, let's jump in. I kind of gave my thoughts about Joaquin's performance. I mean, praised it as the best performance that I've seen from a lead actor this year so far. Do you feel similarly? What do you think about this? Yeah, I don't know that it's quite top of the heap. Again, when I... Th- when I th- I'm going to think back on this performance, I'm I'm ne- always going to associate it with the movie as well. And I think sure. almost, you know, again, to make the Vice comparison, like Christian Bale and Vice last year, um, it's hard for me to separate the performance from the movie and say, well, yeah, it was a great performance, but I don't know that I want this movie to be rewarded. Um, I think that's fair. Even if I do want Joaquin Phoenix to be um, awarded. So I don't know. I mean, Joaquin I, I hasn't won an Oscar. And if he wins it for this, I'm okay with it. Yes and no. Like, I, yes, I would love for him to win an Oscar. He's a brilliant actor, but I think it would be a shame if it was for this film, um, considering movies like Her, Walk the Line. You know, like, the list goes on that he's done in the past. He wasn't he, even nominated for Her, though, right? I think he was. Right? I thought Surely it was. The, he, I thought he was nominated he for was. The Master, Gladiator, and um, Walk the Line. Oh, you might be right, but um, either way, he should have been nominated. He's he's spectacular in that movie, but. Um, I think the one thing for me, which kind of sets this performance apart, which makes it re- really does make it exceptional, exceptional is that, yes, he has this cackling laugh. Yes, he, you know, has these exaggerated movements and dances and, uh, you know, is turning his face up in the classic Joker smile. And yet somehow the performance never feels over the top, right? It always feels like there is a there is an element to this character that is grounded in reality. And I think that's really important for the movie um, because I think like th- this person, this character of Arthur Fleck is not supposed to be like a complete loon who, you know, in real life would be in an asylum somewhere. He is supposed to be, at least not at the beginning of the movie, he is supposed to be um, a, you know, man with mental illness who is trying to exist in the world um, and uh, who is not being allowed to exist by the people around him. And so I think it's very important for him to, you know, toe up to that line, right, of going, uh, of becoming really crazy, of becoming really deranged, so that at the moment in the movie when he does snap, right, when he does eventually become the Joker, it's believable. But at the same time, to not cross that line, because I think, at least in the beginning of the movie, and I was going with the movie for a while. I really didn't know how I felt about it for for a while into the movie, but 
I think the movie kind of presents him as, yes, there is an element here that you are supposed to uh, empathize with, that you're supposed to um, feel that he is justified. I mean, this first fight that happens on the subway, right, um, between him and the Wall Street guys, right? Even though we see him reacting with strong violence, right? He's being beat up by these uh, Wall Street guys, and that is what provokes him to shoot. So even though, you know, you could say that maybe he acted rashly, in that initial moment, you know, you can't exactly blame him for what he does. That being said, he then goes on and shoots one of them in the back when he's trying to run away, uh, which kind of, you know, again, yeah, he, ex he executes him. Yes. Yeah. Foreshadows what is come, what is to come. So I think that scene exemplifies the tight, tight wire act that uh, tightrope act that Joaquin F Phoenix is doing here, like having this performance that is rooted enough in reality to where we are conflicted about how we're supposed to feel about him. Uh, but also having that deranged edge that, yes, we believe that this would be enough to push this guy over the edge. We believe that, um, you know, at this point in the movie, like that, that act of violence would cause him to snap. And I think that both of those are very important because we are supposed to feel conflicted about the character. And I think maybe one of the most successful things about the movie, again, probably not anything that Todd Phillips really did, probably more to the performance of Joaquin Phoenix, is that, yes, Throughout the movie, we still remain conflicted about how we are supposed to feel about him. Um, and I think that's important for what what they were trying to do and, and failed at doing. Yeah, I think that's true for a large portion of it. But I think that there there is a point in the movie where it turns, right, where you, I think, from my experience of the movie, you no longer feel sympathy yes, I necessarily agree for, for him. Um, and, you know, you can draw a line there. I think probably yes. I'm thinking I, of one scene in particular, but yeah. yeah. I mean, like, I don't know how you talk about much of this movie without talking spoilers. I mean, even to some extent, I spoiled a lot of the, like half the movie in my intro. But like, we're just gonna go ahead and throw spoilers off because I want to talk about this now because we're gonna go into themes later and not spend too much time talking uh, about the plot. I do want to talk about the character of the Joker and whether we think that's believable and that descent is believable later on. But to get spoilers out of the way now and just talk about the scene, like, I think that it 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 stops. The hard stop is when. You know, he kills Raymond in the exactly. apartment. Yes, exactly. And, yeah. Okay. So we're on the same page there. But no, I, I think throughout the, the the performance is believable, and I agree that Joaquin is able to to keep it really grounded in the way that you're describing. And you know, he seems like a, a guy who's just really struggling in the world and has right. you know a ton of adversity. He's he has to face and overcome. And yes, he maybe he's making some bad decisions, but you can understand still some of those decisions up to a point in the movie, and then. You know, you have that descent happen and so on and so forth. But, you know, why don't we just go ahead and move on from there, talk about the supporting cast. They're not, they're not very – I shouldn't say they're not very strong performance, but they're not very significant performances in the sense of no one gets a lot of screen time. You know, Francis Conroy, Robert De Niro get a little bit of screen time. Zazie Beetz gets a little bit of screen time. But any further down the cast list and you're talking mere minutes on screen, Scott, did anyone stick out in the supporting cast to you? I mean, I guess if there had to be somebody, uh, it would be Bobby D um, playing the uh, the host of the talk show. Um, I think that he's definitely this is one of the uh, moments where it calls most heavily to Taxi Driver and uh, King of Comedy, the Scorsese movies that it's clearly inspired by, because, um, you know, Robert De Niro was obviously the, the star of those movies. Um, and so I think there's Robert a, De Niro was Arthur Fleck in King of Comedy. Yes. There's a clear nod um, to those movies just by the casting of Robert De Niro. Um, 
But yeah, I think uh, he does a, a fine job. I, I don't think that there's much for him to do in this performance except be this sort of magnanimous uh, TV personality. And, you know, I, I think he does it well. Um, I, I think he plays off Joaquin Phoenix well in that final climactic scene um, yeah. where, where the Joker is being interviewed on the show. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure that I really have too much more to add because there's not too much more to this character or to any of the supporting characters. Um, Zazzy Beats character really confused me until actually, so actually I figured it out like halfway through. Well, um, we didn't and, talk about this in general impressions, but this movie is so freaking predictable. Everything about this yeah, movie is predictable. Yeah. And I don't understand, right? Like, so they are trying to clearly have, like it's a, it's supposed to be a big reveal. First of all, that Zazzy Beats doesn't know who he is. Um, even though he's envisioned all of these romantic scenes with them happening, actually it's just him. Uh, and also- And in, then they find that, that he has to take you back through every single moment and then yeah. show you the scene without her in it, as, as if, if you, you couldn't it, realize yeah. in that exact moment that you had been hallucinating it all. Ugh. And like the whole comedy uh, scene when he does stand up comedy, of course he has a fantasy of like that everyone erupted in applause at the end um of of his comedy set and you're like you're kind of left to wonder like um oh did he actually like do a good job even though nothing in the movie before that suggested that he would have but my point is i don't understand why the movie feels the need to do this unreliable narrator thing because right we know at the beginning of the movie that this character is unreliable right we we know that he has a mental illness um and that we we might not be able to uh fully invest into the story that he's trying to tell and so like I don't think like I don't understand the purpose of having these sort of gotcha plot twist moments that are not really plot twists because yeah we knew all along that this guy is kind of living in his own fantasy world to an extent that he's um you know projecting and that he's inventing uh aspects of his real life that are not actually you know there and so it's not like a big reveal or a, you know surprising twist at all when these you know, gotcha moments happen. So that was weird with respect to Zazie Beat's character. The only other thing I'll mention is that it was a crying shame that Brian Tyree Henry only got like literally three minutes in this movie as like a file clerk at Arkham Hospital, a complete waste of a great actor. Um, and so that was really disappointing to see. Um, and yeah, I guess really disappointing in general, the lack of uh, use that they made of the supporting cast. Yeah, I mean, the main thing that I would note about the supporting cast, because I don't really feel the need to repeat things that you've said, because I, I think we feel pretty much the same about both Robert De Niro, Zazie Beetz, and the rest of the supporting cast, is that I think the supporting cast here in, in Joker just proves that Joaquin Phoenix can carry any movie you put him in, because it's yeah. just him. <laughs> it is him and only him for the entire movie. I don't know if there's a scene without him in it. Uh yeah, I don't think so. I'm just trying to think through my head if there is any. Yeah, and and you know that there's something else to be said there is that the movie is not boring, right? Like we talk about the fact that um, it's it's it probably it's a bad movie, perhaps, but it's worth discussing. I think it's also um, better than a lot of bad movies because it's boring. Like again, kind of tangentially related to that, you at least care enough or you're interested enough in what they are trying to do with the movie that you. Uh, stay invested for the entire running time of the movie, even if at the end I was like, well, never watching that again. Yeah, I, it's particularly interesting because you don't, I don't know, I mean, maybe you like Sassy Beats' character. But I think by the end of the movie, you realize you don't really know anything about her. But, like, you're not invested in these characters. Like, even Murray Franklin, who's the talk show host, like, he's like he's an asshole. Like, he's not a very nice oh, yeah, guy. Totally. 
Yeah, like no one's nice. I mean, you he's learn. Just a, he's just another one of these people in the movie. Like, um, I mean, that's the thing. Per, everyone the in this movie, subway, or the person on the bus at the beginning, the Wall Street people, they're all you know just people who are making fun of Arthur and. Well, uh, and that's where I mean we'll get in a second, but that's where like a lot of the nuance doesn't exist because every person yeah. in the movie is like that, except There's for this crowd. hallucinated Sophie played by Zazie Beetz, and who seems like a nice person overall. When in the one real scene that you get in her apartment, but like even then, you don't know her. She doesn't behave in a rational way, though, right? Like she comes to his door and is like. Yeah. You are following me, and then like he's well, like, that's yeah. all hallucinated. That's all. That's all. It, it is, but like that's that's the thing. I couldn't connect to this character if we were supposed to connect to her um, in any way because I was like, I don't believe that this is actually happening, it, or this character is also really messed up, like Arthur is. Yeah, yeah. Tough to say. Well, Scott. On that note, let's change gears. Let's talk about the plot, the themes. We'll kind of jump around a little bit, but want to go ahead and, and dive in. And the first thing that I want to talk about is something that you've kind of already alluded to, you know, there there's, I've seen a lot of talk online about, you know, this movie like is honestly like is it lacks originality, lacks a lot of things. And that's primarily because it just takes so much inspiration from two of Scorsese's classics that you listed earlier. That is of course, taxi driver and the King of comedy to me, I, you know, I'll raise my hand and say that I haven't seen either of those movies. And so it didn't necessarily have that effect on me. But I did look them up afterwards to look at their plot overall thing. And yes, they seem quite similar in some of their thematic points and their plot points. Scott, I don't know if you're someone who's seen both of those movies, but do you think that this movie lacks originality for those reasons? Or, uh, it, it, you know, something more positive on this other coin, maybe a positive take of this might be that it's just a good homage to those movies and draws good inspiration and, and adds stuff where appropriate. So I haven't seen King of Comedy either, but I have seen Taxi Driver. And I think as far as the differences, Taxi Driver is a much more explicitly political film um, than Joker is. Um, again, Joker Joker flirts with being political, but then it doesn't really come down on any particular side. Whereas I think Taxi Driver, you know, uh, uh, the large thrust of the movie is that Travis Bickle is trying to assassinate a politician and that the uh, woman who he... Uh, you know, first has a crush on, has a relationship with briefly, and then, you know, stalks, um, is working for this politician. So politics is really linked with the themes of the movie and what's going on there. Um, and I also think that they, in Taxi Driver at least, they, they go deeper into the whole like sort of cult of personality that develops around uh, Travis Bickle after the taxi driver killings that happens in the movie. Um, whereas I don't think that they did a good enough job with sort sort of that same idea in Joker, uh, because ob obviously everyone starts dressing up as clowns and, um, you know, putting on the clown masks and all these riots start after the Joker kills um, the Wall Street guys on the subway. But I don't think we get deep enough into Arthur's psyche with respect to that to know how does he really feel about that, right? Does he appreciate the fact that they are um, showing attention to him or that they are clearly acting in ways that are inspired by him? Um, like, how does he feel about that? He seems to be kind of ambivalent about that, which is why I also think the ending of the movie is a little bit strange when he is out in the middle of this riot and there he's sort of being hoisted up as, you know, the hero. Like, is this an idea that he embraces or... Um, you know what? I, I don't think the movie is really clear about that. 
Yeah, I think the the one scene that I would point to to directly respond to that point is that he has that last scene with the social worker where he talks about how people are finally noticing me in reference I to the fact. I actually thought that was a really good scene too, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that was one of the scenes, unlike a lot of the other monologues that I felt like I got from Joaquin that actually like made a lot of sense and, and, and resonated with me. And I think that, that I think and, and that's a good point, yeah. And it's directly referencing the fact that, you know, whether people know it or not, they're drawing inspiration for him. And that feels good because he's gone his entire life without getting, you know, the attention of anyone except for maybe, you know, his mother. And I mean, that, that's a whole separate conversation to talk about maybe. But no, I, I think that for that particular point, I think that there is a little bit of groundwork laid for people, for him to like the attention that he's getting even if like, but, but the thing, the thing is, and this is, it could, this could be the point, right? So, you know, if you feel like this, just let me know, but it's like, he doesn't, it, it isn't motivated. Like he doesn't want people to like be inspired by him for a specific reason. He just wants to be adored by people. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't have any weight behind it. You know, if, you, if you're referencing taxi driver. Yeah. He's not representing like uh, not exactly. fighting the establishment or something no. like that. He's not just a crazy guy who shot people on the subway. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a mentally ill person who was, you know, mugged on the subway by some really shitty people. Um, he defended himself and killed two of them, but he was really angry and tired of, and tired of society you know, crapping on him and he, and he chases down the third person and executes him. And, you know, it, that's not because he's like, you know, screw the establishment wealth. It was more just like, I was defending myself and I'm also just pissed off. So screw you. And it, it doesn't stand for anything. And he continues to not stand for anything over the course of the film. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's a good point. I still think taxi driver probably did it a little bit better, but um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. No, no, you, you make, you make a very good point. I think there is more there than I gave the movie credit for, but yeah, to your point, I, I don't think that, uh, and maybe that was more what my issue was, um, that we're not clear about what he is supposed to be representing. What are these people who are dressing up like the clowns? What what do they stand for? Right. Like it seems tangentially like they are standing for, you know, rebelling against the upper class and yeah. what Thomas Wayne represents. Um, totally. But again, it's they don't dive too deeply into it, I think, so that they can uh, remain sitting on the firmly on the fence, I think. Yeah, I, I think that that what the riots are about is clear enough. I mean, we don't get the the specific politics. We understand that it's you know the, it is essentially the working class against you know these you know yeah. white collar elites that you know you could that Thomas Wayne certainly is a figurehead of in this in this movie. But that's the reason that we don't dive deeper into that is because it's not important for Arthur because it doesn't matter yeah, for he Arthur. Doesn't and it, he only it, cares about Thomas Wayne to the extent that it involves his family, right? And whether yeah. or not he might be Thomas Wayne's son. Um, yeah, no, you're right about that. Yeah, and and that'll be, I think that'll be a recurring, that frustration that I just voiced will be probably a recurring theme across a couple of these topics that we talk about. But, you know, I guess going going from that and and sticking with Arthur and, and you know, I talk, we talked about the performance of Joaquin and now I want to, I want to dig in a little bit deeper into Arthur himself here and thinking about this character and, and how this character is crafted and their story develops over the course of the film. And specifically, I want to talk about like, is this descent in, you know, from what Arthur is at the beginning of the film into becoming Joker at the end of the film? No, there's comments and quotes all over, you know, the internet the last couple of days about 
you know, whether Todd, like Todd Phillips speculated, maybe this, this version of Joker isn't necessarily the Joker that you, you know, the, the Heath Ledger's Joker or Jack Nicholson's Joker or Cesar Romero's Joker. It's definitely this not Jack Nicholson's Joker. That's for sure. Um, or Cesar Romero's. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think the point being that like this, this Joker may just be the inspiration for the Joker that we all know from the comics. Yeah. I have my own thoughts about that, but I think that you could tie that into this conversation here if you wanted to. And specifically, I want to think, do we believe this descent? Like, has Todd Phillips, Scott Silver, you know, everyone involved in this film, Joaquin too included, if you know, he has a vision for this character as well. Do we think that they are creating a character that makes sense, you know, from start to finish? I think that's a weird comment to make, first of all, considering that he seems to directly be tying this into the Batman story, like, to the point where we see the Waynes get murdered in the movie. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't know how much of the movie was left after that, but I almost walked out of the theater when that happened. Well, I, so it seems weird to me that he's like, yo, maybe this isn't the actual Joker when like, it's clearly like rooted in the Batman mythos here. Well, um, no, I think what he's saying is that it's maybe this, maybe this person inspires the Joker that Batman goes up against 20, 25 years okay. later or whatever. But yeah, I mean, and, and that makes sense because right. Because people have been talking about like, is the Joker going to show up in, uh, the yeah. Batman, he, he's not, but there's no way it's in also, hell we, it would also be, it would also wouldn't make any sense, right? Because he would be like 60 years old or something by the time yeah. that Bruce Wayne was the Batman age. But also, anyway, just quickly on this point before you switch over to answering my actual question, I'll say I believe one side of this, I believe that this, this isn't the actual joke that we know because Arthur Fleck is not smart enough to be the Joker, like, period. Yeah. He's not smart that, enough to be, to be the Joker that we've seen on screen I before. But the second part, and this is this is tying back into something that I've already talked about, is that it makes no sense then why they are so on the fence about everything related to the Joker if this isn't even the real Joker. It makes even yeah, less they, sense. They don't have anything to be faithful to, right? They're, they don't have a source material that they're going to be abandoning if they suddenly go in a new direction. Exactly. And because I, I heard a lot of people defending the, like, fence-sitting of this movie based on, like, Joker is an agent of chaos. He can't – he's not political. He doesn't take sides on anything. But, like, this isn't even the Joker then, so that doesn't – that's yeah, not even true for this character. Anyway, sorry. Go <laughs> back to my question. No, that's okay. I mean, I think that, yes, the, I think I found the descent believable. Again, I think a lot of that is uh, credit to Joaquin Phoenix's performance. Um, I think that, like I've said, the guy, you know, he's set up as a guy that we somewhat empathize for, right? He has this condition, right, where he um, laughs at inappropriate times and it causes him to face a lot of social stigma. And um, he's living with his mother. He has these dreams of being a stand-up comedian, but he's not really funny. And all of these things, I think, are, are inherently things that we can relate to. Um, but I think, again, Joaquin Phoenix, there's enough of an edge there to where we are just a little bit unsure about this performance. Um, like, he gets the gun, right? And all of a sudden, something seems to shift in him, right? He has a He has a power that he's never had before when he gets that gun, that he can actually fight back and defend himself. He doesn't have to take it like we see him taking it um, from these kids who are beating him up at the beginning of the movie when he's, uh, you know, playing a clown. He he can actually, you know, fight back. And that is um, why he carries the gun everywhere. And, you know, eventually he does fight back. And I and so I think that, yes, that from there on, the descent makes sense. Right. Because he's seen the power that. Uh, he suddenly has just through this one object, like a, a gun. He's and, and you know, uh, subsequently the um, what stems from this incident, right? That that people start noticing him to uh, what he tells the social worker, uh, and so I think it makes sense that a guy like um, Arthur, who you know is not 
it cl- clearly is not going to be successful at what he wants to do, which is be a stand-up comedian. Doesn't really have anyone in his life who cares for him. He thinks that his mother does, but uh, you know, as he finds out over the course of the film, maybe that's not the case. Um, and so, so it makes sense that you know, he, when he feels this power, um, he would do something rash uh, because I think you know, what's to stop him? Um, he he doesn't have anything in his life um, that is uh, you know that that is giving him a reason to to live really. Um, and th- what's the quote that he ri- is, is writing in his journal? Like, I hope my my death means more than my life does or something like that. I uh, hope that my death makes more sense than my life did. Yes. Um, sense spelled like money. So it was a kind of a play on words, I think. But yeah. And so I think that I, I don't want to speculate too much about, you know, real life incidents and stuff. But I think that there's probably there probably are some similarities to the background of Arthur and maybe some people who have committed acts of mass violence. Um, Yes, mental illness, you know, yes, easy access to guns plays a part in that. Yes, mental illness plays a part in that. Yes, perhaps the actions of others play a part in that. Um, And I think we see all of those things somewhat in play here, but there's never really a satisfying answer about what we need to do um, to, to fix things other than be nice to people. But I, I just don't really think that is the answer that, that is the, that is 100% going to change things. Um, and again, kind of places, maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves, but places a lot of the blame on society, um, which is probably kind of a dangerous idea to an extent. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I did believe the dissent. In other words, I think that that is the most successful part of the movie. That is the part of the movie that, uh, is probably the most realistic and maybe that people were concerned about, um, w- you know, with respect to the, the violence, the, the, um, threat of real world violence that could result from this movie that of course didn't result and was kind of fabricated by the media. But the fact that there are similarities to, uh, in this character to most likely the background of, of some people who have committed, um, mass acts of violence, you know, even even for those people seeing themselves represented on the screen could be dangerous. Um, and so I think the, the dissent makes, makes sense to me, even if maybe some of the fallout from it is a little bit troublesome. Yeah. I want to talk about this movie being like too violent and, you know, whether or not maybe it validates certain people in a second, but to this point, you know, and, and specifically the dissent, I, I think I'm, I'm relatively on the same page here. I think the one thing that I struggled with at first was kind of reconciling this, this huge swing in Arthur's personality between being this like really, I don't know, almost, I don't even know what the right word is, but like, you know, almost, almost too submissive to, to the people around him and just kind of taking it from everyone. And then all of a sudden these flashes of hyper violent reactions, whether it be on the subway uh, again, to some extent, reasonable response there you got to defend yourself from literally you know literally getting kicked to death uh but then how that scene finishes but then also you know the fact that he you know has this really shocking moment where he stabs randall in the neck and watches him bleed out on the floor and then of course like the the finale where he you know point blank range shoots shoots murray franklin in in the head uh on live tv and i i think that it was really interesting because there's other moments where i'm talking about him being sort of submissive where you know he's fleeing the cops on the street he's you know take you know he's really just kind of taking it from 
whether it's his mother or you know other other people around him that he's speaking with, you know, whether it's his boss, whether it's Randall and other scenes. Um, it, it's really it's a really interesting combination, and I'm not that's not to say that it's not believable, but that's one of the things that I really tried to reconcile as I, as I watched this kind of descent happen. Um, and then I think even in those final moments of the film where you know he's being you know, showered with this adulation of the people around him being lifted up. Like he's standing on top of the car, he's dancing, he's being, you know, in, in some ways kind of very, very almost like worshiped in, yeah. in a way. Totally. And even in those moments, I, you still feel like you see, and this maybe speaks back to Joaquin's performance. You still feel like you see those submissive elements that you got throughout the rest of the movie as well. Um, and maybe it's, maybe the, it's just part of that performance from Joaquin, which is so good. But I think overall, I agree with what you're saying. I, I might be a little bit, uh, less hot on the descent overall than you are, but still, I think it, it is really is one of the stronger parts of the movie. Yeah. All right, switching gears to one of those things that you were talking about, and you know, I saw so many people who hadn't watched this movie uh, before this weekend saying, "Oh my god, I can't believe that Warner Brothers or you know why or Hollywood would put out a movie so violent in this current day and age." And I just absolutely roll my eyes because clearly they haven't seen any movie that's they not seen Django Unchained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Just this year, John Wick 3, I mean, the list goes on of movies that I'd argue are way more violent than this one. But, Scott, did you think that this movie was too violent? I mean, we, we've really touched on this already, but do you think that that critique of the movie or of the studio is valid? Absolutely not. Um, I think I, I'm kind of an absolutist, which maybe is a little bit controversial when it comes to this thing. I, I don't know that a movie can ever be too violent, and le- you know, as long as it is... Uh, making a salient point in the way that it portrays violence. Um, and I think that what maybe more what people are responding to is that the violent scenes in the movie are very disturbing. Uh, it's not that they are particularly pervasive, but they are very disturbing when they happen. Shockingly uh, graphic violence. Yes, but this character is very disturbed. Um, and so I didn't have a problem with it. And yeah, I, I think that that, that, that is where I... I I think they lean too far into the, oh, you know, violent media is going to inspire people to do violent things. And no, I think if there's any dangerous part of this movie, it's that, you know, that someone might see themselves represented on screen in the Joker. It's not that, oh, there's a lot of blood when this guy gets shot in the face. I I think that's a stupid claim. And so let's just switch right to that point because that's the next thing I want to talk about. Um, You know, there's been a lot of conversation around this movie, whether it it sort of combines – some sort of mixture of a lot of things, but one of the one of the words that I feel like it's thrown around a lot is that it validates or enshrines or puts on screen an incel and someone who can that that other or at least that incels, so to speak, and if we have to define that term we can, but like can see a lot of similarities between, you know, how they view their world and how Arthur's world is being portrayed on screen. And I'm just curious to then talk about this point because I think it's the one we've kind of been building up to in many ways. And we'll get to mental illness more specifically, maybe in a second. But uh, do you feel like this movie is is concerning for the fact that it it provides an example of a way to maybe behave in response to how you're feeling? Maybe the realities aren't the same here. I don't I don't like I don't know if too many people are having the experiences that specifically that Arthur is having. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. But do we feel at all any concern around the characteristics that Arthur is portraying on screen and how that might inspire people? I don't know. I honestly don't think so. Um, I think that, first of all, I think that incels is probably not the right word to 
use. I, I, I mainly use it just because it. people are using it. Right, I think yeah, that, yeah. Because I, I don't think Arthur is an incel. I want to actually be really clear. Not, I don't think yeah. that his sexual frustration is really exactly. an element of the movie at all. Um, so no. I don't. I think that that is an incorrect word that people are using. Yeah, I, I understand why you used it, but. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, again, I think it's it's kind of like the 13 reasons why argument, right? Like, are you just by representing something on screen, are you inherently glorifying it just because you are uh, representing it? Um, and I don't think that that is the case. I try to look at this. Obviously, you know, we're diving deep in the movie. We're looking at it from a nuanced perspective. I, I There is part of me that has been trying to look at this movie from uh, the viewpoint of an ordinary moviegoer, right? Um, who is not going to perhaps think as critically about the movie as as we might. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I think that the movie is so off-putting and so disturbing. Uh, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons why those violent scenes need to be so disturbing um, to sort of signal to the audience that, hey, look, this, you know, if, if you were feeling any sort of empathy for this guy, if you were seeing any part of yourself uh, in this guy, this is the point to to turn that off, right? This is the point where, um, you know, you you should not be uh, empathizing with this character anymore. Um, and so maybe that's why the disturbing violence is um, is somewhat uh, is somewhat necessary to the movie. Uh, but just looking at it through an ordinary moviegoer, like I honestly think that maybe the movie doesn't deserve to be. Uh, deserve to inspire certain conversation. Maybe this movie doesn't deserve to inspire certain conversations, but I think that an ordinary person, an ordinary moviegoer may, may actually respond to the less subtle techniques that Todd Phillips is using here and maybe provoke a conversation about mental illness and a conversation uh, about um, how to treat people better uh, that people need to be having it. I mean, I am included in that conversation, right? Um, I, I think all of us are. I think that that's um, that's part of the point. We we can all treat other people better. Is that going to stop people from becoming the Joker? No, but uh, that is an important thing to do. And so while I, again, I don't think that the movie uh, deserves to inspire certain conversations, I don't know that Certain conversations are necessitated based on what the movie gives us. But looking at it from the perspective of an ordinary moviegoer, I do think that this movie, the, the sort of sledgehammer-like um, on-the-noseness to an extent, um, is going to force people to think about, force an ordinary moviegoer who might just switch off and tune in for the spectacle um, to think that, or to, to think more critically about what the movie is saying. Cause you know, I talked about how people have been coming up to me, asking me about these movies, this movie. And a lot of people have said, you know, this movie is deep. Like that they're, they're really getting into some stuff here in this movie. Um, and like, I don't know, again, I haven't been, and I'm not trying to sound pretentious by saying this, but like, I haven't been an ordinary moviegoer in quite a while. I've, you know, for years I've been writing reviews about the, about movies whether it's in newspapers or whatever. So I, I have always been trying to think about them in a critical way. But, you know, I think there was a time and, uh, you know, there is still a time for a lot of moviegoers and probably like a lot of the people that I go to school with um, where they're going to a movie for the spectacle and they're going to a movie to enjoy it. And of course, we're going for that reason too. But um, we're also looking for something else. 
But the fact that this movie is not conventionally enjoyable uh, is perhaps why people are like, well, hang on a minute. What is this movie trying to say? And maybe transposing messages onto the movie that aren't really there or aren't, um, you know, exactly presented in the most responsible way, but nevertheless uh, are forcing them to have these conversations. And that's why uh, I think that this movie isn't completely worthless um, because maybe people will start to have conversations about these things. So that's a very circular answer to your question probably, but I think that ultimately the aggregate impact of, of this movie is going to be people having more conversations about this kind of stuff rather than people responding again, because I think that that is a lazy argument and saying that, uh, oh, like, you know, it's it's, you know, trying to blame the media for um, a particular act of violence. And really, there are a lot of factors that go into this. Yeah, I think so. A couple things to go back to the original point you're making. I do think it's really important to clarify this, that I, I think that a lot of the people who are kind of hurling the like incel inspiration kind of language around this movie are a little bit off base. But I do think that they're not totally off base. And I'll, I'll lay out my thoughts for why. I think first, I think it, I think it is definitive that I do not think that if, by definition, at least. Arthur, I don't think that Arthur is an incel, right? You talk about uh, uh, sexual frustration and like being rejected by women and particularly with that frustration directed at women is such a critical part to how I think that definition kind of lies. And I don't see that at all with Arthur. Yes, he's fantasizing about being with Sophie, but it's never clear to me whether there's any sexual frustration yeah. in that one scene, you know, when he real when he finally realized he's been hallucinating this. He just wants a connection with someone, I think, no, not necessarily a sexual. It, it, right. And I and yes, it I guess it contributes to you could argue maybe it contributes to that. And, you know, maybe there's a question. About, does he kill Sophie in the in the room that then shows him walking back to his apartment? I think that's an open ended question that we don't know the answer to. I, I think that. I think that he probably doesn't, but you know, you could say if if that is the implication of that immediate scene after that, he maybe he has killed Sophie. Maybe then you have a clear argument for calling him an incel. Maybe I don't know, but that's kind of my perspective on how things play out there. That being said, I think that this movie, you know, if, if I'm trying trying to imagine something that I'm not, right? So there's a you got to take it with a grain of salt. But I think that there are elements of Arthur's character that I imagine a lot of people could, could can at least relate to to some degree. And I think that this particular population of people that we might be referring to here and calling them incels, you can call them whatever you want. I think that they might see a lot of similarities in how they're treated. Maybe not specifically by the way that Sophie treats Arthur, but by how other people like treat them, whether that's in the media, whether that's online, whether, you know, wherever that might be. Right. I think that there are some, some, some overlap there and some similarities. I mean, maybe, you know, there is the stereotype and you can say it's whether it's true or not, but like living with your aging mother, I think is, is like a common stereotype associated with that. I think, you know, fantasizing about women who are, you know, you're attracted to and them being attracted to you, I think is probably a component of that, which yes, I think Arthur does do, even if I don't think that necessarily ultimately, ultimately ends up in sexual frustration towards them. And then, and, all of, and, go ahead. you know, to that point, like these are things he fantasizes about, like he fantasizes about being with a female. He fantasizes about that scene with Murray where he, fa he fantasizes about talking about the fact that he lives with his mother and being accepted rather than rejected for that 
um, fact, when when Murray is like, hey, there's nothing wrong with living with your mother. And there's this whole dialogue that they have in this, yep. you know, completely fictional sequence. But yep. I mean, there is something there to what you're saying, I think. Yeah. And then like being made fun of or taken advantage of by the people uh, around you and being perceived as, you know, and particularly people who who society might think of as more successful or more competent. I think that there's a lot of overlap there. And I think when you tie that together with the way that Arthur, you know, thinks and talks about how people treat him. And even though I think that that ultimately has a broader message beyond that, but I think that the visual depiction of how he responds to that frustration, again, even though it's not directed explicitly towards women on screen, I think that there are enough similarities and the violence is so, you know, almost like phantasmagoric in nature. I think it really does create an interesting narrative there. And And I can understand where some of that criticism is coming from other people. Again, I think I'm a little bit lukewarm on that criticism of the movie because I don't think this movie is trying to paint Arthur as a quote-unquote incel. But I think that there is still an argument to be had somewhere in the middle on that question. Yeah, and and I, I do think that that ending does somewhat muddy the waters. Um, like, obviously, we've been, um, you know, we've taken a turn with how we feel about this character uh, and any sort of empathy that, um, we felt towards him should be gone by the time the end of the movie rolls around. But then I think just this image of uh, him being hoisted up by the crowd is so like viscerally impactful that yeah. that may be the thing that someone takes away from this movie, not the hour before it of this man's descent into, um, you know, madness, rather that he's being he's now being worshipped by society. And that, yeah, that, that is dangerous. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the other points that you were making here because I think that they're also worth addressing. And you know, you're talking about how people, you know, your your quote unquote your your ordinary movie or the person who only goes to the movie theater, you know, a handful of times a year and sees in law school, what we would call the reasonable person. The reasonable person, sure. I mean, we're definitely not reasonable, Scott. So that's a great no. description. Uh, but I think that it's really this movie fascinates me for the, and I think that I think that the enduring the enduring conversation and thought about this movie over a longer period of time is going to be this point, actually. And I think that, I think, um, like, in terms of film, in terms of film critics, I think it's divided. Opinions are divided. There are people who feel really strongly negatively. There are people who feel really strongly positively. From an ordinary moviegoer perspective, this movie has been mostly a hit. 90% audience score. Yeah. B-plus cinema score. I mean, people are really responding to this movie in a way where they are at least saying that they feel positively about the movie going experience. I hesitate to use the word enjoy or anything like that for the reasons that you've said. It's a, I think it's it's a just, difficult movie to enjoy. It's just the visceral impact of it, right? Like no matter who you are, you can feel like you feel this movie in your gut throughout, whether you're enjoying it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for the reasons we talk about, you're still glued to the screen and it, it does have a visceral impact, whether it's the violence, whether it's the portrayal of this character, whatever it is. And so I think that's what people are responding to. And they're, you know, they're saying that, wow, I really felt something during this movie. Maybe yeah. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I did feel something. Well, see, and that's the thing that I want to talk about, because the thing with me is that, like, I look at this movie and I think about this movie and I'm like, this movie is so vacant. Like, there's there really isn't anything underneath the surface in this film. Not that the topics that it's trying to touch on aren't really deep and worth discussion, but that there really isn't much there. And I find it so interesting to, to think about, you know, these conversations that you're talking about, maybe your friend's having. Because I can't, I just can't picture, and this is my own bias, I'm not saying this is 
that like any sort of perspective except my own. But like, I just can't see what deep conversation any person is having about this movie, about what's like actually happening on screen. They might be having a conversation about these topics, but if you're talking about the movie itself and like, I mean, one of the things that I like about a movie, and again, this isn't, this isn't necessarily what makes a movie good, but like if a movie presents a topic, it takes a side and then asks you to like figure out whether you agree with it or not. Like that's what I that that's the movie that's the type of movie that resonates more with me and maybe that's the problem here because this movie doesn't take a side it presents something I don't think it gives you either side of any story it just presents a topic like hey here's this thing to think about go with it like just have fun go think about it uh, because the story we're telling it doesn't do anything other other than tell you like well some people were mean to other people and someone was violent which caused more violence yeah but but even that right like even these early scenes I think where we see him being disparaged by somebody on the bus or, uh, you know, the wall street people on the subway because of his condition. Mm -hmm. I think like, yes, we can look at those and say, that's overly simplistic to say, you can't be, you shouldn't be mean to people, but that doesn't mean that people don't act this way in real life. And I think that, um, particularly as it pertains to mentally ill people, like, yes, we have all experienced that sort of moment where you see someone who has, uh, a mental or physical uh, illness of of some type, and uh, they are perhaps being disparaged or ridiculed, or or maybe it's just a simple act of you 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 look away from this person, right? Like you don't want to have anything to do with this person. Uh, and I think that this movie does shed light on that um, phenomenon, which is still which is still present, right? And I still think that as simple as it may sound, people need to learn to be nice to each other because people are less are, are meaner now than they ever are than, than they have sure. been for a long time. But and like, so, but I don't think anyone is having a deep conversation about like whether or not kicking, like literally beating a guy up on a subway is like a good or bad thing to do. I, I hear what you're saying. I do. Like yes, I get how that's bad. How, but that I, 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 I guess I'm just talking more about the attitudes that people have. Yeah. Yes. Not the, not that specific violence, but the way that people talk about, Mm-hmm. Arthur, the way that people react to him and his condition. I think that there is a conversation there that I I think people will have. I hope people will have uh, because I think it is relevant to an extent. Yeah. Yes. No. Like what, what is that conversation about? That's why I don't understand what the conversation is about. That when we see someone like this, when we, you know, when we encounter someone in our daily lives like this who has a condition or uh has a mental illness is lonely we should be compassionate to this person and um but that's not I, a conversation like I, I that's not a hot take like everyone would agree with you everyone would agree with you in theory right but this sure, is what I'm, that's saying. what I'm saying in, you're talking in, about having a conversation about something and i just don't think there's anything to have a conversation about with this movie. well I, i'm just saying in practice like like i said i i related to the fact that like yes i've i have been that person before sure. right like you see someone in public and you you look away or something or you just try to like move quickly past them you you try not to interact with them and mm-hmm. i think that Again, I'm not trying to go to bat for the, um, the movie as a whole. Sure. Because of it. But when I talk about people having conversations, I guess that's just what I'm thinking about because I did personally respond to that. And I think that that is something that happens. And yes, in theory, we're all like, oh, we're great people. We're nice. You know, we would never do that. But in practice, I don't think that that is the case. And hopefully, and I, I do think that this will cause people to have some conversations about the way the disconnect between the way that they think about these things and the way that perhaps they actually act in their own lives. Yeah. I, I guess maybe that's, that's the rub for me is that I just don't think people are going to, I don't think this movie is going to inspire that conversation. Okay. 
And I just think that people aren't good at having, I mean, one, I think people aren't good at having, at having those conversations and having that self-awareness. Yeah. I just, I just wonder then, what do you think that people mean when they're saying to me like, Oh, this movie is deep. This movie, I want to talk to you about this movie because it really gets into some stuff. Multiple people said that to me. Yeah, no, I, I'm curious to hear this too, because my, my instant reaction would be like this movie, uh, like the conversation they want to have is like, Oh, like this movie is deep because like it talks about mental illness and like the way we treat each other. But like, I'm telling you, like, that's, like the mental illness, maybe that's a conversation you can have, right? But I'm telling you, like treating people poorly, like that, like w- like you're gonna have a two second conversation about, like, yeah, man, I it sucks that like people treat each other like shit, and like I should treat people better. Like that's just not. I, I guess I just don't think of that as like a deep conversation to have about a movie. No, Men- I, mental illness may be something different there, yeah. but and that that's not what I envisioned that these people wanted to discuss. But now, now you have made me curious. Like I I, I do want to ask one or two people, um, you know, what were your thoughts on what the messages of the movie were like thematically, what do you think this movie was about? And I I may end up doing that. So, yeah, I mean, the deeper conversation might be around like at a, at a global society, like societal level, what is like our responsibility to other people? It's not like, like, should we treat people better? Yes. Like that, that's like, that's not a conversation. I don't think just, again, this is just my personal perspective, but like a deeper conversation would be like, what's the responsibility of like an individual? What's the responsibility of the government? Like how should, like, what are the systems that we should have in place to protect, like protect is maybe a weird word to use, but like to support people, whether it's, you know, institutionally with these, like so with a social worker and these people supporting you for counseling, medication, et cetera, you know, what, like where lies certain responsibilities and maybe that's a broader conversation to have. The thing is, though, like, I just don't think this movie sets it up well to have that conversation because everywhere you look in this movie, like, there's not, like, with two exceptions that I can think of, talking about, everywhere you look in this movie, people are mean to each other. People are mean to Arthur. The two exceptions are Zazie Beetz's character, which you still don't know much about. Maybe if they had multiple interactions, she wouldn't be very nice to them. Who knows? And then the other is, like, is the, I can't remember the guy's name, but his other coworker that comes to the house with Raymond. Uh, yeah. who, and the reason he doesn't kill him is because he'd like at least been nice not him, mean. Yeah. Well, nice. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't leave those other scenes thinking yeah. that he had been but, nice to Arthur, but he hadn't been mean to him. Yeah. What you're saying is that there is no ideal, right? There is no character who this is the person who embodies what we are supposed to embody. And exactly. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that idea. Yeah. So like maybe like the movie is like giving you a topic to think about, but not giving you a conversation to have. Like you have to create that conversation on your own. Yeah. And so I don't think this movie is deep. This movie is just like picking a couple topics out of society that are obviously issues and throwing them at the screen. I don't think it's deep either, but I am just, yeah. my point was just that I'm curious as to why people think it is deep or, or what topics they want to raise when they think about a movie as deep, right? Because yeah. that is not something that an ordinary moviegoer, uh, that the reasonable person might mm-hmm. say about, you know, a comic book movie. Is this a comic movie? Maybe that's another question we can dive into later. Hey, we see the Wayne's parent. We see the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne. So faithful. Someone uh, needs, I saw this. Well, I can't. I, I had also thought this, but I, I want to give credit to where credit's due. I saw this review on Letterboxd where someone said, Mar- people really need to stop buying Martha Wayne pearl necklaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that image of the pearls. I could go the rest of my life without seeing it again. You haven't even seen BVS. It's awful. In, in that, like, the opening scene in BVS is that exact thing. And there's this like image of the pearls just like falling to the ground that just makes me want to kill myself. Nope. I've seen it so many times now. Nope. Uh, anyway, so... Moving on, we've already started to touch on this a little bit, but I think it's it's the last kind of big thing that we need to talk about. I, you know, we can we've briefly touched on class warfare already. I don't know if it's worth digging any deeper because I don't know how much nuance really there is there, other than like everyone is terrible in this movie. You know, like 
people who are rich are mean, but also like people in the working class are mean too. Yeah. So uh, there's really just not much nuance there. So I think that the major thing left to talk about, I think, is the depiction of mental illness. And, you know, I think there's a lot of ground that this movie, that there's at least a lot of ground to talk about um, in, with this film regarding mental illness. And I just want to hear what you think about how it portrays, not just Arthur's mental illness, but like how, how it talk, how it portrays how you should think about mental illness, how mental illness can lead to certain things, what it does well, what it does poorly. I mean, yeah, and this goes into the point that we were just discussing. Like, I don't know that it really gives you an idea of how you're supposed to feel about mental illness beyond, again, don't be mean to people who have a mental illness. Don't, uh, you know, try to treat them uh, as best as you can. But also Um, don't treat anyone poorly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, Right. And so I think even even the point there about mental illness is diluted, right, because it's it's just the. Uh, it applies to everyone in general. It should apply to everyone in general. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I, I do think that I am troubled by like the like overemphasis of blaming other people for um, the way that Arthur is acting, and that you know if you don't treat mentally ill people in this way, then you are somehow uh, guilty of you know, what they may do in the future of, of, uh, you know, if, if, if you, because you treated Arthur in this particular way, because you looked away when you were on the bus, um, then, you know, you're responsible for him shooting Robert De Niro in the face. And I just don't think that that is the responsible position to take because yes, of course you shouldn't have done this, but there are so many other factors mental illness being a huge one that go into why people commit these violent acts and why people have a descent like Arthur has in this movie. Um, And by not giving us that person who embodies again, what we are supposed to, how we are supposed to act, what we are supposed to believe. um, It's hard to know exactly what the movie's position is about uh, how we should address mental illness. How should we respond to, the systemic problem of mental illness. What can we as an individual do? Obviously, we, we kind of see what the government can do, right? They can not cut social services, which I don't think is something that there's really any fear of happening. As 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 messed up as our government is right now, like that's not uh, something that I personally foresee happening. So I don't know uh, how you know how much of a, a great point that that is in the movie. Um, well, I mean, there's always talk around like cutting coverage of, you know, med- I mean, repealing Obamacare was such an important part of, you know, Trump's presidency for the first like year or so. So, um, I mean, I think that it's, it's targeting on that. Like, yes, maybe no explicit, like there, I don't think I could be wrong. I don't think that, that there's ever been a policy shift towards like, we should cut social services for yeah. people. And it just seems illness. like an but I think it's, it's all rolled up together, right? Like not, yeah. not, not treating healthcare as something that can really do a lot of good for people. Continue. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know that I have too much more to add, just that I, I think that this movie doesn't it, it presents mental mental illness in what I think is a fairly, you know, realistic way. And again, I think the descent is believable. I think that mental illness is an element of the descent that uh, we see Arthur take. But other than showing us, you know, what a mentally ill person perhaps experiences on a day to day to day basis. I don't think this movie gives us anything to to take forward. Like when you when you leave the theater, I don't know what this movie is saying about what you need to do other than, yeah, you know, pay attention to these people and 
be compassionate towards them as much as you can. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think I, I, I agree with what the, like that part I just said. I think I, I, maybe we have a little bit of disagreement and I'll go into that in a second, but I think I would take it a step further and this is maybe where we diverge a little bit. And that is because I think that I'm not totally in love personally with saying with this portrayal of the Joker. And I'll, and I'll raise my hand and say, this was my, my biggest concern going into the movie that the movie would do this and kind of purport this as like the, a reality to think about. Right. But this idea that like, if we don't treat someone like this is all stuff that you're saying, right. But like, if we don't treat someone well, you know, if we don't, if we cut their social services and cut their support like institutionally, and we do all these things that, that don't support them, then ultimately, you know, because they have this mental illness and they're not being supported, it leads to violence. I'm really not comfortable like with that necessarily being like the key takeaway. I think that there's, and that's particularly because of like maybe the socio-political climate. And I'm not saying that like mental illness doesn't, it doesn't play a role in, in leading to violence. But I think that there's particular things about that where I, I don't think because you have a mental illness, if you are not supported, you then will ultimately resort to violence. And I'm just worried that given like certain stereotypes around like, people who commit mass shootings and being mentally ill and how like that's a primary reason. And that's not what you're saying at all, but I'm saying because that is an argument that is used by people with certain, like, I guess, political affiliations will say around why if we just supported them a little bit better, we, they wouldn't have resorted to violence. I, I just think that there, that it, this movie paints a picture that's really easy to like point to and be like, see, this is exactly what I'm saying. Like if we don't support people, mental illness is the reason why mass mass violence happens. And I don't think that that is necessarily the best exemplar to be putting out there. It was one of my concerns going into the film that it would paint a picture of mental illness leading to violence. And I think that it does do that. It does do that with a lot of context, I want to say. It, it adds a lot of context for sure that ultimately results in that violence happening. You talk about access to guns, the fact that he was given a gun by his coworker and had that gun to use. You know, he's not, you know, you can't shoot the guys on the subway. You can't, you know, shoot, you know, our, Murray Franklin if he doesn't have the gun. And, and I mean, is Arthur someone who we believe has has the, I don't know, the mental fortitude or the, the I don't even know what the right word is, to like go out and, and I guess the ambition to go out and buy himself his own gun and and take it into to a taping and shoot Murray? I don't, I don't know whether that's true or not. We don't really have an answer to that. I would lean toward no, personally, um, but I could be wrong there too. But my, that was that's just my concern with the portrayal of mental illness. Not that it's not believable, especially, you know, in, in some ways you could even describe the portrayal of mental illness as a bit lazy too. Cause I think it, to your point, exactly. You know, you just look, you know, just look at the mass shoot. Like it felt like he maybe just like Scott Silver and Todd Phillips and whoever else might've just gone, gone through the last two years of mass shootings, looked at every person who's committed to mass shooting and be like, you know what, let's try to dissect this person's psyche and like rebuild that on screen. And you know, maybe that's not a lazy way to do it. I don't know, but it just felt like it, it was a not a caricature, but like definitely molded off of this idea of like you're a mass shooter, and that I just it didn't sit well with me. Yeah, no, I I don't I don't know that I have too much to add there. I think that I pretty much agree with all of the points you are making. I think that um, a, any direction that the movie takes towards attributing mass shootings or attributing these mass acts of violence solely to mental illness, I don't think is the right direction to take at all. Um, and, yeah, and, so, and I don't think the movie is necessarily trying to do no. that. I just think the way that it, the final product that you get on screen, I can just, it, it feels heavily weighted toward mental illness because the fact that he's not on his medication anymore, which is the reason why he's feeling so clear minded and, and, 
you know, thinking about these actions and, and taking a little bit more initiative to do these things. Because before, you know, that violence was in response to people striking out against him. But then at the end of the movie, you know, he's going to the hospital and, and you know, um, asphyxiating his mother and like, you know, choking her essentially. And then he's, you know, yes, Raymond comes into his apartment, but he chooses to pick up that knife and take it with him when he goes to the door and do that to Raymond. And then obviously he goes, he goes to the, to the studio with where Murray's at and, and actively chooses to, to do harm to him there. So it, it just feels like there's a shift over the course of the film. That's, that's foundationally centered around his mental illness. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. All right. I, I think there's, two questions left and they're less theme related and more just back, going back to maybe the movie plot and the structure of it. Um, well, at least this one is, and that is, you know, what is the deal with that final scene? You know, we have this scene, you know, you talked about the glorification of him, uh, this kind of worship like scene towards the end of the movie, but there's another scene after that where he's in, I assume it's Arkham, Arkham asylum, Arkham hospital, and he's being interviewed or spoken with or counseled by this, this woman. And then, you know, at the end of the scene, he walks out of that room with blood, like blood footprints on the ground. You know, these shoe prints that's kind of dipped in blood, implying, of course, that he's killed this this orderly or this nurse that he was talking with. And then he runs around the hallways. And I'm just curious what you think this scene means in the grand scheme of things. I really have no idea. I mean, part of me thinks maybe they they're leaving it open for the sequel, right? Maybe that's where the sequel picks up. Um, Which would be opposite of what Todd Phillips said. He said it, it was meant to, to tell a contained story and never have a sequel. We'll see if it ends up getting a sequel. Yeah. I have my own opinions about that. but I think it probably will based on the money that it's making. But And Joaquin Thane, he'd be open to it. So Yeah. I mean, may, maybe it's just another like – I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to be some sort of critique of institutionalized institutionalization or something this film's uh, not that deep scott you're thinking too deep <laughs> yeah i i don't yeah i i guess i was trying to read more into it than i actually got out of it but all right well let uh, me throw an idea at you to see yeah. how you respond to it i wonder if the point of this final scene is to ask an, another really stupid question about whether or not the entire movie is a figment of arthur's imagination and that he's actually been in the asylum the whole time because there is a scene early on in the movie Work with me for a second. There's a scene early on in the movie where you see him banging his head against a wall yeah. in the asylum. I mean, I think he may be onto something there. Like, and how the, dumb is that? If that's what it is, they've already done that in the movie, right? Like they they did it with the the yeah. comedy scene. They did it with his whole relationship with Zazie Beats, and he's like hallucinating at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you could be right about that. And how dumb is that if that's the point of the movie? It's very dumb. It, it completely trivializes any point Everything. that they might have made. Yeah. Wow. I can't think of another reason why that scene exists. That's almost as bad. Uh, thinking about it in that light is almost as bad as the post credit scene in, uh, in Vice. <laughs> I just... I, at first I was like, is it just this dark... Because my, my initial reaction is exactly on the one that you laid out, right? You're talking about like... Well, clearly he's just this super violent person now, and this is who the Joker is. And then you think more about it, and you're like, but you don't need that scene to get that. Like, you don't need any more violence. I'm going to have to rethink my score now, I think, because this this uh, this makes the movie, if, if this is indeed the case, then the movie also falls prey to, like, I've mentioned this before, but, like, the my in, old one of my old English teachers used to talk about the three ways that you shouldn't end a story. One of them is, like, 
everyone dies. One of them is a storm destroys everything. And one of them is it's all a dream. Um, and, you know, honestly, based on the, the tone that and the superficiality that the rest of this movie. Uh, yeah. The unreliable talks, narrative portion that you're talking about earlier on in the film. Yeah. It's why I have all it would be that. consistent with that. And, and that's yeah. why I think all of a sudden I am buying into your idea because it feels very plausible. Yeah, because there's this brief moment early on. I can't remember exactly where it lo- where it's where it's laying out in the in the context of the whole film, where he you see have you see a shot of him in what looks like the same place that he's at at the end of the film, banging his head against the window. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. And when you yeah. when you started saying that, I was like, yeah, I completely remember that shot. All right, Scott. Last question before before we get out of here, well, <laughs> at least out of this portion of our of our podcast. What do you think the legacy of this movie is going to be? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I still think that people are going to turn to the Dark Knight for the best cinematic portrayal of the Joker. I think that um, Heath Ledger did something that will never be equaled. Um, And as powerful as Joaquin Phoenix's performance is, it's something different. And I think just by the nature of the movie, people are not going to return to the movie that often because it is so disturbing. and it's not an easy watch, no matter how much you appreciate what this movie is trying to do. To say that it is an easy sit and something that has a lot of rewatch value, um, I I would not understand that point if anyone is out there. I think people that. are saying there's – I mean, I think that there are people saying that, though. Well, that – Like, you that, need to go watch this movie a second time to really understand everything that's going on, which I totally disagree with. Yeah, I, I so I don't really know if I have a good concept for what the legacy is going to be like of this movie. I think I'd be interested to see if there are going to be sequels, right? Like I think that could um, that could change what the legacy of the movie is. But uh, right now, I would not be surprised if this movie is something that people really respond to in a particular moment. But maybe a decade from now, people. The, the movie does not age well, in other words. Um, yeah. and, and that people a decade from now look back at this movie and say, yeah, you know, maybe we got that one wrong. Maybe this wasn't the, um, you know, uh, really perceptive social critique that we thought it was at the time. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I, I mean, I don't think I, I've seen the movie a day ago and I don't think it's aged well. But um, I think 10 yeah. years from now, maybe a, a larger majority of people will come around because, you know, like you said, the audiences are enjoying this movie right now. Yeah, I, I was reading one of David Ehrlich's, Ehrlich's com- uh, columns about this film and about how, you know, well, one of the comments, columns that he wrote was about how this movie wanted to be Fight Club and just falls so short. Yeah. I thought it was a really interesting column and I'd recommend reading that on over at IndieWire. But one of the things that he brought up either in that column or another one is that he thinks that no one is going to be talking about this movie in a year. Yeah. People will have forgotten that it even exists. And I'm inclined to actually agree with this because yeah, I just don't I think, think this movie good. has anything to say. Like it just doesn't have anything to say. It asks a lot of questions about a lot of different topics and it doesn't have anything to say about any of them. You're going to think, think about the performance but not the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, you're going to you're going to remember Joaquin's performance especially if he wins an Oscar. Like this will be like the performance that won him the Oscar. But I don't think anyone is going to be talking about this movie. And, and, you know, now that you say that, like at least one person that I talked to about the movie who had seen it, they saw it and I, and then they were like, tell me what you think. I saw it and I told them that I didn't really care for it. And they were like, yeah, I, I liked it, but I think it was just because Joaquin Phoenix did a really good job. 
And I was like, okay, well, there you go. Like that now what we're, what we're talking about. Yeah. I think the performance is the thing maybe that is sticking with people the most and that will stick with people. And that makes uh, sense. Two years from now. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. And I, and that, is that doesn't make a good me. movie. Exactly. And so I, I'm inclined to agree with, with Ehrlich as, as often as I may disagree with some of his other movie takes. Um, I'm inclined to believe that I think that the audience score here and the cinema score, it may be really positive and it may look good right now. I just don't think this movie's gonna gonna have a legacy really, and I think that's for the best. Let's revisit in a year, I guess. Yeah, set your calendars. Episode ninety or something. <laughs> well, I guess episode one hundred and ten because we're doing an episode every week now. So, in a year's time, there you go. Yeah, you're not wrong. All right, Scott, favorite scene or moment? Yeah, that's that's a tough one. I do like the. I guess I'll I will go with the scene with him and the social services worker where. Um, she's talking about social services getting cut and he, you know, she, he, he's like, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to get my medication? And she's like, you know, the people out there, they don't give a crap about people like us. They don't give a crap about you, Arthur. Um, and I think that's maybe the closest the movie gets to having something of a political commentary, but for the reasons that we, uh, have, have discussed at length, um, it's not nearly as incisive as it could have been. Yeah, I'm going to go a slightly different direction. One of the scenes that sticks with me the most is kind of the final... There's lots of shots of this really huge staircase, and I I don't know. I'm not familiar enough with New York geography to know where it is, but I'm sure I could ask one of my New York friends, and they'd tell me exactly where it was. But the final scene there, he's got his full makeup on. He's about to go to Murray's show, and he's dancing on the stairwell. You saw it in the trailers, even. It's actually set to a different song than the one that was in the trailers. Um, but I think that scene is fantastic. No line spoken in those moments. Um, whatever the whatever the kind of uh, cover of whatever song they were doing, I thought was perfect for that scene. I thought it encapsulated a lot of what I found to be awesome about Joaquin's performance. And so that scene is the one that, that sticks with me in terms of the one that I just enjoyed watching the most. Those low, low uh, looking up camera angles there. The sc- Again, speaking to that soundtrack and the score, and then Phoenix, Phoenix by himself on screen, uh, doing doing what he did best in, uh, about this movie, and that that scene really worked for me. Yeah, no, that's that that stands out to me too. And I I may not have mentioned it specifically, but I did think that the cinematography was was excellent here. Yeah. All right, Scott. Sounds like you might have just revisited your score. I don't know, but what are you going to give a score on this one? Yeah, well, I, I'm not going to go too much lower. Ultimately, I'm going to stick with a 4.2 on Joker. Um, I think that this is a bad movie that is an interesting bad movie, which is much better than a bad movie that is not interesting. And while I am never going to watch this movie again, uh, and I don't think, again, like we said, don't think it'll be relevant uh, in the future, um, I am not displeased that I saw the film. Um, and so it's not a complete bomb for me. It's not the worst movie that I've seen this year, certainly. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix does deserve a lot of credit. So 4.2. Yeah, I'm coming in around the same point, uh, 4.5 for me. Uh, one of the most frustrating films that I've watched this year. But the fact that it made me frustrated at it is something. You know, there's plenty of other movies that I have saw this year where I was totally indifferent after seeing it. And it was, was total garbage kind of those films that, that you were alluding to. One of the things that we only briefly touched on as I wrap up here that I do want to mention is that for a standalone movie outside the DCEU, 
man, they really wanted to be a part of the DC universe. Yeah, no kidding. I don't, I don't understand why they felt the need to include Bruce Wayne at all in this movie. Um, I get, I get the function weird. that Thomas Wayne served. For yeah, sure, yes, but, absolutely, but not Bruce. That was or Alfred. Yeah. You get Alfred in this movie. Was that supposed to be Alfred? Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure because I was like, would the butler be out there by the gate? Uh, I don't know. I thought that might be might be someone else, but don't ask too many questions about this movie, Scott. It doesn't yes. have answers for you. You're you're right about that. <laughs> all right. That should do it for our lengthy discussion of Joker. Hope you guys all hung in there and you know, maybe some of what we said made sense to you. I don't know. But let's take a short break or you know, maybe press pause and take a nice long walk outside before you listen to part two here, just to to wash yourself off. But uh when we get back, we'll be discussing this past week's news. Uh, one news in particular, because we know we're running long here, and then a few trailers that really stuck out to us. But we'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, you know, there hasn't been too much going on in, in movie news recently. Thank God, because we talked enough already on this podcast uh, to make up for a news section. But there's one story that's worth touching on since we did just technically review a comic book movie. And uh, that is comic book related in that Martin Scorsese, I guess. And I don't know if it was because of the release of the Joker and, and his association with it, even though he didn't get producer credits. Obviously, Taxi Driver and Cam Comedy, which we talked about being big inspirations for part of the story being told but someone put a mic in front of scorsese's face and asked him what he thought about the mcu and he said that he thought that uh it was not cinema specifically he thought the movies were akin to theme park rides and and not true cinema you know there have been a whole host of people who have responded who are part of the mcu james gunn uh robert downey jr samuel l jackson a bunch of people responded and I think the over overwhelming opinion being like, you know what? Scorsese's allowed to have his opinion. Not everyone loves his movies. Um glad that he, you know, that we can hear his perspective on things, but I wish that he watched the movies before forming an opinion about all of them. Uh, but Scott, what do you think of these comments from Marty? Uh, do you think that he's justified? Is, is he uh, allowed to have his own opinion in this day and age or what do you think? <laughs> of course he's allowed to have his own opinion and I have no problem whatsoever with him expressing his opinion. My main issue, in addition to the fact that he he didn't watch any of the movies, and particularly some of the latter movies, which I think do get do try to go for something deeper than just your average superhero spectacle, certainly yeah. in the case of Endgame. And specifically to his point, he was saying that real cinema, to, he did define it a little bit. He said real cinema is humans trying to convey real human emotions to, to, to your audience. And he's saying that MCU movies don't do that, which is laughable to me. What but. a joke. Um, yeah. And so, but my other problem is that I think that he did not present it as this is my opinion. He presented it as he could have very simply with, in my opinion, or saying to me, like, this is, you know, the case, but he did not present it that way. He said definitively that Marvel movies are not cinema. And when somebody as influential as Martin Scorsese says that people listen, people believe that. And I think that's what's so disappointing is that here we Scott, we talk all the time about how genre film deserves to be respected and deserves to be respected by award shows, whatever you know, whatever the word respect means in in film circles. Genre film deserves to get respected uh, because, to Martin Scorsese's point, it at its best, it absolutely has that emotional resonance that 
any you know Martin Scorsese film that The Departed had. Like it, it, it can absolutely do that. Think about our best, our favorite movie of last year, right? Searching, which is a genre movie, and it was like maybe one of the most emotionally affecting movies I've seen in a long time. And the same goes for Avengers Endgame this year. Like we experienced, the both of us experienced every single emotion during that movie, and certainly we were not alone, right? It's the top grossing movie of all time. People would not just be going back to the movie, seeing it three, four times, if it was just because of the popcorn spectacle of it. There's obviously something more there, and we've talked about what that is. So what is disappointing is that he, he had a great opportunity to say, hey, I really appreciate what the Marvel movies are doing. They are like the Russo brothers, whoever they have created this narrative across 20 something movies. Uh, they've done something which has resonated with a lot of people. They have brought good storytelling to the big screen. I mean, you know, I, I don't expect him to go into that sort of detail, but he had an opportunity to speak out and say that he appreciated, you know, the, um, it, it appreciated Marvel movies, appreciated these genre films. And that could have made a huge impact, right? Because Martin Scorsese is someone whose movies are always awards fodder. He is not somebody who makes genre movies. And so to for him to have, if, if he had used his platform to speak out in favor of these movies, it could have made a huge impact. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe started uh, some change towards the, to, to the Academy and towards awards, uh, thinking about these movies, um, in, not just as genre films, but as movies worthy of award consideration. But he didn't do that. Instead, he stuck his foot in his mouth and he gave this very boomer take about uh, how these movies are not cinema after watching probably 20 minutes of one of the movies. And I, I, I'll be honest. Yeah, like, he said he stopped. He couldn't finish yeah. a couple of the movies that he tried to watch. It it, it definitely takes a, a the respect that I had for Martin Scorsese definitely takes a hit after this comment. I, I think it's just lazy and not becoming of someone with who who has such a incredible cinematic, you know, one of the greatest directors of our time. Um, like for him to just say that this is not cinema is is blasphemy. Yeah, I mean, to say it's enti entitled and pretentious is uh, an understatement, I think, you know. I, you know, you couldn't ever imagine him replacing the words MCU with genre films. And, but that it sounds like that, that but that's, that's exactly the soundbite that he's getting out of this. And it's just, maybe he thinks of, I don't know if he thinks of Midsommar the same as he does MCU, that they're not, that it's not real cinema. Right. But, yeah. I thought about all those horror movies too. Like what would he have said about, about Midsommar or, or, us, or get, get out. Yeah. Yeah. Is get out not cinema either. Yeah, and I don't know. And I think the point is that, you know, outside the context of a mic in front of your face trying to get a soundbite, I imagine that Martin Scorsese's opinions of genre films and even MCU films might be a little bit more nuanced than the soundbite that he gave. But the problem is, he said what he said. And it's not that he doesn't believe what he said, it's just that maybe there is additional context, maybe there's not. But the problem is, is that that's what's out there in the media. That's what everyone's talking about. And to your point exactly, that's what everyone in the Academy is going to listen to. That's what everyone in the Hollywood foreign press is going to listen to. Like it just validates people who think that, you know, the MCU and, and related movies, you know, whether it's the DCEU, whether it's, you know, what Fox was doing before they of course were acquired well, by the Disney. The DCEU isn't cinema. I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, good call. Good call. Joker's not cinema. Uh, I know it's not the DCEU, but anyway, no, I, I think that it, it is a real, it is a real shame because Marty's, of course he has his opinion. We, he should express his opinion. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Uh, but I think he comes off looking a little bit silly 
uh, especially around people. And it's especially, it's especially apropos when, you know, he's someone who, to your point, every, every time he makes a movie, he's, you know, he's getting an award nomination. I can't even know the last time he made a movie that didn't get a nomination um, at the Academy. And he, you know, he's never made a genre film. He doesn't know what, it, but, and that doesn't mean that his movies are better or worse than anyone else's. And it's just disappointing. Yeah, it is disappointing. I don't, I don't have a lot more to add, but I do think that some of the quotes that um, people have come out with have, have been uh, very perceptive in terms of people inside the Marvel camp, like James Gunn talking about how Martin Scorsese was a huge influence to him. And his, he thinks his, on his Mount Rushmore of, of current, you know, of mm-hmm. living filmmakers. So to hear him disparage his work like that. Without um, having seen it. Yes, without having seen it is you know, hurt his feelings. And yes, that's completely understandable. And Samuel L. Jackson talking about how, looks, Marty, like not everyone likes your movies either, but there's a difference between like not liking them and making a value judgment about what they're worth is to society. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just sour that Avengers Endgame made about 10 times whatever his movies make, but who knows? Retweet. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, let's talk about some trailers. Let's end this top podcast on a positive note. Uh, Cause I think we got three fantastic trailers to talk about today. Let's start with the, the one that probably has probably gotten the most views and that's the birds of prey trailer uh, riffing off of the, the DC imprint of course, with Joker showing this weekend birds of prey coming out in February. We get the first full length trailer here. We get a, a long look at uh, Harley Quinn coming back. Of course, Margot Robbie playing that character. But the wider cast of the Birds of Prey themselves, too. You got Mary Elizabeth Winstead. You, and I'm forgetting. I'm blanking on a couple other names right now. But what did you think of this trailer? Ewan McGregor. Um, oh, yeah. Ewan McGregor. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I, I am hesitant about this movie, obviously, because it's in the DCEU. And I think that this movie appears to be taking on a more jokey sort of comedic tone, for, certainly from this trailer. Um, and that is a little worrisome to me not because that's not the direction that they needed to be headed in need to be headed in because they do like the movies have been for the large part too self-serious but i think about like aquaman which was somewhat tongue-in-cheek and to a greater extent shazam this year which was you know largely a comedy those movies weren't funny and so i'm worried about um you know just what the comedy in this movie is going to be like is it actually going to be funny is the writing uh, going to be on the level of like what you would see in the MCU movie where the jokes actually make me laugh. And so that gives me pause about the movie. But I think that the movie movie has a cool design. And obviously, I love Margot Robbie. If anyone could get me on board with the DCEU, um, it's her at playing this character, even if um, her first attempt at this character um, was in a movie that was just uh, a dumpster fire. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. One of the things that I'm maybe I I am optimistic without really any reason to be here, but I think that to your point, you know, you have these really dark films with some of the original DCEU movies. Maybe Wonder Woman is a standout there of some of making of of striking that right balance between uh, darkness and humor. And I'm kind of I'm kind of optimistic that Birds of Prey is going to find that balance that Wonder Woman did because I think you're right. Like in some ways, the pendulum swung too far in the other direction with movies like Aquaman and Shazam. And, and you know, I'm a little hopeful that they will be able to strike that right now because they have a, ta- a singular talent in the form of Margot Robbie. I mean, someone who 
you know, I don't think anyone else is, is able to do what Margot Robbie is able to do. That's not saying that anyone, like she's better than everyone else in Hollywood right now, but I think she's a singular talent in Hollywood right now. And I think that um, having her on board is, is huge from a production value and, and striking that right balance. And they also have Christina Hodson as the writer for this movie with Kathy Ann directing. And Christina Hodson did Bumblebee last year, which I thought struck the balance of like earnest and funny in the right way. Now, was that movie dark? No. And Birds of Prey is going to be a different kind of, of dark there. Uh, but I think there's proof there that that you could strike that balance with just with Christina Hodson's background in terms of the script. Like you can strike that balance between, you know, earnestness and and humor. And, may, you know, maybe you can translate that earnestness to um, to, you know, dramatic and, you know, black, dark comedy, so to speak. I don't know if you can. It, it, that's, that's not necessarily a one to one ratio is what I'm saying. But like there's a little bit of a reason to be optimistic there. And then Kathy Ann as as the director you know, I don't know anything that she's done before, so I don't know. But the fact that it's a woman directing, it's not David Ayer this time in terms of this particular sub-franchise. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but we'll see. And and I thought – and the trailer, to I guess, to actually answer that question, the trailer really worked for me. I thought Ewan McGregor looks fantastic. I thought Margot Robbie is, you know, picking up right where she left off in Suicide Squad is one of the brightest parts of that film. And I think the supporting cast is super interesting. And one of the things that at least the impression that I got is that Ewan McGregor is such a force on screen. He's going to own those scenes that he's in, as he should. But then Margot Robbie, at least from the look of the trailer, carrying a lot of the other scenes there. And I think that that's the right way to think about it. Like Give her that central role. Allow these supporting you know, other people, uh, other birds of prey, other members of the supporting cast there to play off of her with her in the lead. I think that that's the vibe I got from the trailer. I think that's, that's a good recipe. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I do hope that this strikes the Wonder Woman balance because, yes, that is the by far the DCEU movie that has done uh, that has done that the best. Um, but, uh, you know, so there is reason to be optimistic. But I think like I felt the same way about Shazam. I felt like there was reason to be optimistic about that. And sure. at least for me, it it was a big disappointment. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we'll see in February, Scott. You know the fact that we'll get to see it together. Hopefully, at an Alamo Draft House, will make the experience better. I don't know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oscar weekend, so we can all just be pissed a couple days later after we see uh, Joker win Best Picture. Uh, but yeah, I think that that, that I'm excited about this movie. And <laughs> until I'm just I thinking about that possibility, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it got nominated. Um, anyway. I think that, yeah, no, I, I'm excited for this trailer and I'm optimistic, even if I shouldn't be at this point with the DC. It did win the Golden Lion at Venice. Joker, not Birds of Prey, but yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm still hung up on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll move on now. Scott, I think another, I think the other two trailers, are, you know, you're talking about, we were just referencing Joker's awards uh, chops and whether or not it's going to get nominated. And I think two movies that have a pretty good chance of being nominated themselves. Let's start with 1917 directed by sam mendez scott we saw this trailer and it was kind of confirmed in a supporting news article that this movie being being of course shot by cinematography being done by roger deakins is going to be shot and edited in a way that makes it look like one singular shot throughout the whole film scott i mean it won't be a this isn't a surprise to you i don't know if it'll be a surprise to our audience either that that is music to my ears birdman one of my favorite films from a cinematography perspective because it's shot in entire in its entirety to look like two shots technically, but one shot for the vast majority of the film until it has a cut towards the end for dramatic reasons. Uh, and the fact that this film is being uh, done in a way to have these tracking long shots. I mean, just watching the trailer, Scott kind of gave me chills just to think about what this experience is going to be like. Yeah, no, I'm not someone who generally is like super on board with war movies, but I think that 
this definitely gets my attention for a few reasons. First of all, it's World War One, which we don't see depicted a lot on screen. Um, second, the you know immersive techniques that you've talked about there, um, I think could could really go for a Dunkirk like effect. But third. And this is what I said to you after watching this trailer was that I think that this movie, at least the way it looks from the trailer, looks like it may have sort of that human story, that heart that Dunkirk was maybe slightly missing. That made uh, Dunkirk not quite the like spectacular home run film that I think it could have been. Yeah. Um, and I think Benedict Cumberbatch looks like he's going to be great in this. Uh, and yeah, there, there's this whole plot going on where like, someone trying to find their brother or something like that. Um, yeah, well, so the so the plot is they need to deliver this this urgent message to the front line that there's going to be this this kind of sneak or surprise bombing or attack of some sort, and if they don't manage to get that message to them, everyone's going to die. And it's yeah. just that one of the guy's brothers is on the front line. Right, where he's going. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So so there, I mean, they're right there. It seems like there's an emotional hook to the story, which is something that uh, I look for in, in every movie, as you know, Scott. So if if the movie. Um, leans into that more heavily than Dunkirk did while still having that technical prowess that, that Dunkirk had, which it seems like it's going to, then yeah, this, this could be a, a recipe for something really special. Yeah. I mean, this trailer alone, Scott, I mean, we, I talk all the time about trailers that I really enjoy watching, but this trailer just rocketed this movie up my most anticipated um, movie list for like what's left this year. And I wasn't expecting that when I watched the trailer, but it, this, if done well, as with every movie, if done well, uh, it, it, I mean, I really feel like this could be one of my favorite movies of the year. Totally. All right, Scott, final trailer. Another potential awards contender kind of came out of nowhere. I think we talked about the fact that this was getting an awards season release, getting rushed out the door by, by Warner Brothers, and that is Richard Jewell. We got the first trailer this past week. We know it's debuting at a festival, I think, maybe next month or later this month. It's, it's very soon, coming out in December. Scott, what did you think of this first look as Paul Walter of Paul Walter Hauser as Richard Jewell, Sam Rockwell as his lawyer, John Hamm as an FBI agent, which I feel like he's played like 10 times at this point. I don't know. Um, and then uh, Olivia Wilde as a reporter. Yeah, this looks great, Scott. Um, I really, really liked this trailer. Um, this is a project which has been, you know, caught my eye for a while. I, you know, have been familiar with the story for a few years now. Um, this is, of course, about a security guard who discovered the one of the bombs at the Atlanta Olympics in 1998 and then was subsequently uh, falsely accused of being the bomber uh, and sort of put on trial by the media over this cor course of about two or three days uh, before he was eventually came out that he was, you know, innocent. Uh, Paul Walter Hauser was the person that I wanted to play this role before he was ever, ever cast. So obviously that gets me excited. But yes, the stacked cast that you mentioned there, Sam Rockwell, John Hamm, Olivia Wilde, they all look absolutely great in this movie. Um, it looks like there's sort of a journalism-y thriller type um, element to it, which is always something that uh, I love. And, you know, also a, a media critique there. If handled in the right way, I think it can be a really uh, interesting story about media witch hunts, um, to, to borrow a phrase that our president likes to use. Um, Fake news. Yeah. And I think it could be a really interesting and relevant story um, if, if handled right. And, you know, Clint Eastwood, uh, he's getting up there in the years, but the dude is still churning out movies. And, you know, The Mule was a surprisingly good movie. I think definitely my expectations for this movie are going to be a lot higher than they were for The Mule. But my point is, I haven't seen anything in recent years 
of course I didn't watch 1517 to Paris, but um, if you had, to, you might change your mind about what you're about to, to say. Yeah. To suggest that Clint Eastwood uh, has lost something in his filmmaking ability. So yeah, this, you talk about 1917 rocketing up after this trailer, this is definitely rocket up. I think this is going to be a really great movie. Yeah. And, and I, I think for the most part, the trailer had a very similar effect on me as it did to you, but just to play devil's advocate for a moment. And we, talked about this briefly off air as well before we started recording and that says you know this is clint eastwood and you know with the political affiliations and, and self you know self-reported beliefs that he has directing a movie about fake news and you know media witch hunts scott like is there any concern at all that he won't have that sensitivity that you just talked about it needing this type of story yeah, there is concern. But then again, I would think back to The Mule once again, which is one of the things that I took away from that movie was actually the surprising sort of tenderness in the relationship that developed between um, Clint Eastwood and the the Hispanic drug dealer, some of the Hispanic drug dealer characters. And I think that if you're going off of Clint Eastwood's political affiliation, that might not be something that you necessarily would have expected to see in that movie uh, based on that. So uh, I think at least based on the mule, uh, that gives me some hope that uh, may maybe he's able to dissociate his um, own personal political preferences from, uh, you know, hampering a story that wh where they perhaps do not fit. That's a fair point. Yeah, I'm very excited to see this. We'll see if Sam Rockwell gets nominated for yet another uh, <laughs> Academy Award. He's on a roll recently in terms of nominations. Of course, really is. winning for three billboards, of course, a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, but you know, I'm excited about this film. And I mean, you, you talk about it rocking up your list of movies that you're excited about for the rest of the year. I mean, th this movie just landed on my list. We didn't even know this was happening. We know we talked about this last week, but the fact Shit. that this is even getting released this year is honestly, I don't know. Like what? Like I don't know. They they just created some sort of like Clint Eastwood sweatshop over there at Warner Brothers just to get him to turn out this movie for award season. I think he's very efficient. Yeah, I guess so. Very lean in his production. They don't, they they're using everything. They're not cutting anything from the film. They're yeah, just I, th I think together. he's probably one of those directors who is like does one or two takes of every scene and then is like, all right, we're good. Yeah, no no deleted scenes going to be on yeah. that bonus track. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 60 of Some Like It's Scott. Do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today? Um, I was going to do a sports update, but there's really not much of a sports update except Wake Forest Demon Deacons are ranked number 19th in the uh, ranked number 19 in the AP poll in college football. They have a really legit shot to go 9 and 0 before meeting Clemson in a game that they would get destroyed in, but it would be fun to see them uh both teams rolling up undefeated to that game. So, uh, I mean, UNC teams. almost took Clemson down. So that is true. And Wake defeated UNC. So, yeah. Well, well Scott, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe, <laughs> maybe next time on the podcast, you can update us. Are they playing before we record again? Probably. So, yeah, they play Louisville this weekend. Well, that should be a takedown for you guys. I mean, I anything hope. can happen, but that yeah. should be. That should be one that you guys win. Uh, anyway, but before we do leave, Scott, I do want to promote our brand new mini series. The first episode of which will be dropping, you know, this weekend on Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and then every Sunday thereafter. And that is Star Wars Countdown. We'll be releasing a new episode every week from now until the Rise of Skywalker comes out in December. Scott and I will be revisiting and reviewing each live-action Star Wars film with a very special guest. Jay Habib, he's been on the podcast before, uh, both some like it's Scott and some other versions of the podcast that we've done, uh, who has somehow, some way, never seen a Star Wars film before. I don't know how it happened, uh, but somehow he hasn't seen any of them, but we're going to 
go through movie by movie with him. And uh, we're going to see what his takes are. You know, we think this is going to be a really awesome series and everyone should definitely tune in if for no other reason than because you're going to get to hear the perspectives of two people, Scott and I, who have seen the Star Wars films many times. And then another person who's literally watching them for the first time and see that difference. It's going to be really cool. All right. Did I leave anything out with that, Scott? No, but if he thinks Attack of the Clones is the best Star Wars movie, then uh, the series might not make it more than two or three episodes. <laughs> That's why we're all recording separately. We can't all record in the same place in case Scott gets too heated about Star In case Star. I get too heated, yeah. <laughs> all right, Scott, where can people find you on Twitter? At Scarbydent. Awesome. And I can be found at SShelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at, at Media Plug Pods, and as well as our podcast Patreon page. That would be www.patreon.com slash media plug pause. We'd love it if you checked us out over there uh, where there are a bunch of reward tiers depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge the podcast. And we'd appreciate it even if you only contributed at the $1 level. Again, that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Check it out for yourself. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts and on Pod- Podbean. And recent update on Spotify. We're now on Spotify, so you can find us over on Spotify as well. Uh, wherever you do listen to podcasts, we're probably there at this point. Uh, I don't know if we're missing any other services. But if we are, let us know. We'll get there too. Uh, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, subscribe, shared, all that jazz. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll be back next week with the Ang Lee-directed, Will Smith-led sci-fi action thriller, Gemini Man. Until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. kind of wanted to uh at the end there say if anyone actually made it through all of this send me a text to say that you listened to the whole thing because tell me tell me tell me you're alive really curious if anyone listened to the whole 80 minutes of that